Hello, friends. So happy to be here with you again. My week has been quite eventful and just lots going on in my personal life. And so it's actually just really nice to be here with you talking about all the things that I love cooking and coaching and just sharing it with you all. My sister, by the way, told me that I need a jingle and I know that I need a jingle for the podcast and I have actually designated it to my musical husband, Frank. So (laughs) we shall see what is born in the next few weeks. Keep your ears pricked for that. I'm going to start with what I'm cooking tonight. And just something I want to share is that for me, cooking is something which I find so meditative. And I think that's the main reason I love it so much. For me, it's totally not something that I have to do that's on my to-do list at the end of the day. It's actually just very relaxing and intuitive. And in this past week where I've been really having to manage my mind and deal with stuff, it's been a real haven to kind of zone out with. And I was thinking about that and I wondered if that's something you experienced with cooking. And if not, and if it's something you want to experience, it's like, how could you think about it in a way that might create that experience for you where you feel as though it's meditative, where you feel relaxed when you're doing it? So that's just something to consider I am craving mushrooms loads at the moment, and I really don't know what that means about my vitamin deficiencies, but I keep buying loads of them. And tonight I'm going to make a mushroom soup, and this combines two recipes that I have floating around my brain. I kind of rarely reference like recipe books anymore because I just sort of trust the process that whatever I'm going to like mix together will taste good enough. And there really is with cooking, not with baking. There really is very little that you can do wrong. So I saw one from Hugh Fernley Whittingstall the other week, which is in the Times, which is where you roast the mushrooms and cashew nuts, super rogue, and you blend that into a soup with stock and all the good stuff. And then there's this more traditional one from Jamie Oliver that I just remember making years ago, which had obviously mushrooms, but red onion, thyme, and cream in it. So... My Sally serves it up kind of mix on those things is an amalgamation and I will roast the mushrooms with red onion and thyme. Um, And I think I've also got a courgette floating around. So I'll lob that into and I'll roast that at not too high a heat, like 170, 180 for about 45 minutes. I don't want everything to get super dried out. And then in a pot, I've got, um, I have also got a leek, but this is not essential because you've got the onion in the roasting tray. Um, But I love leeks. So I'll saute a leek. And when that's soft, I'll lob in the mushroom tray with enough chicken stock to cover it. And then I'll let everything kind of boil and get to know each other for about 15 minutes. And I'll blend it all pretty thoroughly with, you know, my hand blender and add about a quarter of a cup of ground almonds, which are my favorite way to thicken things like this and add fat, which is really important to me when I'm eating soup because I do 
want soup sometimes, but there's something where I can, I can notice myself kind of going into diet mentality with it. Like, oh, I've had soup. That's not enough food. And I want to make it so that it is enough food. And fat is one of the ways that you can do that. So I'll add ground almonds to things like ratatouille. There it is again. Um, but like curries and it really just, it's such a good one. It tastes really good. The texture it creates. It's really my go-to basically for all soups as well. So I'll add the ground almonds and I've got a little bit of double cream from the chicken pie I made. Um, so I'll add that and I'll blend that all in. And then I'm going to add some chickpeas um, and blend that maybe a little bit because I like, I want some bite. I want some chew and I'm going to add some frozen spinach and yeah, I'll just eat that. This delicious super weights me and think it's going to be pretty delicious. So this kind of how I've packed out that soup with fat and a bit of protein and carbohydrates and lots of different types of fiber and vegetables kind of leads me nicely into what I want to talk to you about this week. And it's sort of a part two to last week's episode where I talked about how it's not the food that will create your weight loss. And I offered that planning your food ahead of time and journaling what you eat and including exception eats for the things that you really love and bring you joy is one of the best ways to lower your over-desire and over-importance that we tend to place on food. And when you lower your over-desire and over-importance, everything becomes easier. You won't be walking around wanting as much food and you won't overeat and you'll lose weight and keep it off because what's going on with your thinking is aligned with your actions. And really that is such a key shift for so many people who weigh more than they want to weigh or feel as though they can't get a handle on the food. And it's about your approach, your thinking and sort of rewiring your brain more than the food in and of itself. But there is, you know, I'm going to flip it this week because it is about the food sometimes. It's still related to your brain and how you think, but specific foods do make a difference. Like the quality of your food, what you eat, how you eat, when you eat, like how much you eat does make a difference to over-desire and over-hunger and therefore overeating. And I want to give you the information that I found to help me most to recalibrate things. And I just want to preface that, I feel like I'm always prefacing, but really the beauty of this work and what I'm hoping to share with you throughout this entire podcast is the power of combining things. It won't just be one thing in isolation. Like, some things will connect with you more and resonate and feel more powerful than others do. And that's great. That is your unique mix. So think of what I'm offering you here in this podcast as like, <laughs> I mean, how I'm visualizing it is like layers of puff pastry. Like you keep adding to it. It, it will just make it better. It will become stronger and more robust as the information increases and compounds itself until you have this perfect pastry mix that is just right for you. And it's about taking what you like and just leaving the rest. It is not about obligation or feeling like you should apply these things. But if anything resonates, it's about being curious enough to try it out, to experiment. 
So this is going to be the first of a few episodes where we cover some of like the food itself, how you eat, what you eat, when you eat, how much you eat. And this week we're going to start with sort of how and a little bit of the what to kickstart things for you. And it is a little bit longer this week um, because the like they couldn't really go without each other. So bear with me, but hopefully you'll find the information really valuable and um, incredibly compelling to listen to. <laughs> so let's talk about hormones. You may have noticed that there's more talk now about our insulin response to things, what happens to our glucose levels, our sugar levels when we eat and how the hormone insulin reacts to it. This isn't going to be a biology lesson. So here is what I think is most helpful for you to know. Insulin is our fat storage hormone and it's responsible for regulating the glucose levels, the sugar levels in our bloodstream. When we eat, it will take glucose that isn't being used for fuel and take it to our fat cells, our muscles and our liver for storage. It's literally like the hormone responsible for our self-preservation because like if we don't have access to food later. I think that the most helpful way just to think about it in like a top line way is it's responsible for how much fat we're storing. And if there's lots of insulin in our bloodstream, it means we cannot be burning our fat stores for fuel. A good way to kind of think about it maybe is like a hibernating bear. When they go into hibernation, they're accessing all that great fat that they've been building up for fuel. And they can do that because they're not constantly dealing with new food that's coming in. Like they aren't reacting to new information. They're just able to access their fat because insulin isn't having to deal with new food. And they go in fat and they come out skinny. But alas, we are not bears. And over time, because of what we're eating, how we've been eating, how often and how much, some of us become insulin resistant, which for the purpose of this explanation, I'm going to say means we've just got more insulin running through our blood, which means we're never in a state where we can access our fat stores for fuel. It means we're just holding on to fat. And in fact, that we sort of keep adding to it, keep compounding it, which isn't ideal um, if we want to be losing weight and we're not going into hibernation. So because we're adding to it with all sorts of things that kind of make it more difficult for us. We create this over desire and over hunger and it'll all just make our chances of losing weight and actually feeling good in the process really hard. And when you want to lose weight, burning your fat stores is what you want to be doing. So like the most important thing that you could be eating when you want to lose weight is your fat stores. It's not some miracle food. It's what you've already got with you. And that's actually a kind of, I think, a quite empowering way to think about it and a way to kind of strengthen that message that it's not the food. So there's also this idea of becoming metabolically flexible. And so that it's, you can, like, that means you can switch easily from burning food for fuel to burning fat for fuel. And that will be your superpower. And that is where your weight loss resides in that capacity to be able to switch from dealing with the food that you've eaten to then going into like fat burning mode. 
And that's how I would suggest thinking about insulin and insulin resistance and what you kind of, why it's happening and what you want it to be doing. And it's possible to adjust things to become insulin sensitive again. If you're eating really high carb, high sugar food, your insulin spike will be higher. And over time, if you keep doing this, you might be in a state of insulin resistance, which means your body can't respond like it used to, to say a cupcake, and you'll gain weight over time. If you think of that cupcake, the high and then the low you feel afterwards, the crash, and then you eat more to basically come back up. Think of gravity, like what goes up must come down. And our brains will want to go back up again. Like they'll be like, oh no, this this feels rubbish, not only in our bodies, but in our minds. Let's get things back up. Because of the dopamine response to the sugar, to the highly concentrated food, which I'm going to come like get into, it all becomes a pretty difficult cycle. It's relentless where you're trying to perpetuate that high. And in doing that, you're creating a sort of OTT insulin response. But what we can do and what the goal is, if this is a problem for you, is to lower the spike, lower the rate, the sort of aggression of that spike so that it becomes a gentle curve through your food. And the best ways I can suggest that help with your body's insulin sensitivity, which also positively cascade into the hormones responsible for how hungry and how full you feel, is through what you eat, how you eat, when you eat, and how much you eat. And I'm going to tackle the what and the how this week, and we'll go into the when and how and volume next week. So let's talk first about what your plate consists of. And you can do this by eating, you can re-regulate your insulin by eating a balanced plate and even looking at the order in which you eat the food. So you have a plate of food and let's use a Sunday roast as an example. So say you have some roast chicken, roast potatoes, carrots, broccoli, and gravy. That's a delicious plate of food and it's pretty well-rounded. Got no problem with Sunday roasts. A good way to start is just dividing up your plate into quarters, sort of imaginary or physically, you know, you can do it this way. But dividing up your plate into quarters with half as the veg, a quarter with the protein and the other quarter with the carbs. And that's a really good visual to go by. And what I would suggest is then getting some of the non-starchy veg in first. So eating a bit of the broccoli. Eating this fiber first helps to lower the spike. And then you can do more of the veg, protein, then fats. And in an ideal world, you would eat those roast potatoes last. But I'm not going to be so strict with myself that I avoid what I would consider a perfect bite, which is a little bit of everything. So what I would do is just eating some of the veg first, some of that broccoli first, the non-starchy veg is a really good place to start. And then even things like keeping the skin on the potato, that added fiber, that makes a difference. So really when I say to my clients and to you, focus on fiber, it's an easy way of tackling this and reducing the insulin spike. Now, when I eat pasta, which for me is a weekly exception eat, 
I tend to try to make sure it has vegetables and protein with it and a side salad. And I'll eat that salad first, which really helps the glucose spike. And then I'll dive into the pasta, which has been balanced out a bit with protein and vegetable and fat, as well as the carbs. If I'm giving pasta, if I'm being given pasta, say at a dinner party, which doesn't have veg or protein like with it, but almost always has a side salad, I'll eat that salad first and sort of just be really American about the whole thing or take bread. It's about having something fibrous and fatty on top, even some protein to make the spike less momentous. And the glucose goddess on Instagram is a really good person to look to for this. She has loads of really good graphs that just explain this super succinctly. Um, And everything is science-backed and, you know, she gives evidence for loads of stuff. So if you want to take a look and take this further, she's a really good place to start. And she talks about the idea of dressing your carbs And so I just want to be really clear. It's not about not having them, but it's about putting clothes on them, putting fat, protein and fiber on them so that your body doesn't release a bigger insulin response than it needs to, than is ideal. And that just seems like such an easy win to me. You you can also apply this to sugary things. So it's, it's like little stuff, like a nutty chocolate or nuts with your apple with the skin on would lower the spike more than just like some plain dairy milk or some peeled apple slices. This comes to my last sort of section of this podcast, which is about sugar. And I'll probably go into this more another time, but this is something I want to share with you today. So sugar is what I'll say, because I don't want to kind of like you know, attach meaning to it that maybe you don't have and say it as if it's fact. But sugar can be tricky for some people. It's much trickier than flour in my experience, which does create, you know, high insulin response um, or just high carb food can create high insulin response, but it's just not as addictive as sugar. And really, a really good place to start is just focusing on kind of the balance of your plate and dressing your carbs. And I think that's a really good place to start. Like don't villainize, is that the word? Villainize the carbs. Um, I love carbs. (laughs) They make me feel really good and energized and I love them. Anyway, so they did a study where they found, I read about this at the weekend, where they found that mice became more addictive to sugar than cocaine. And that just kind of blew my mind. And it made a lot of sense to me, actually, from what I've seen in clients and what I've seen in myself, because I didn't think I was a sugar person. I remember every, like, I'd go to a dinner party and be like, no, no pudding for me, but I'll have another glass of wine. And I realized now that wine was really my sugar. And when I started having less wine and I still, and I started having desire for, say, pudding and sweet things, I was like, oh, that's what's going on here. That's a whole nother episode about alcohol and sugar and dopamine. So I see it in my clients as well. Just some do find it harder. And that's because we're all different and we all have unique responses to dopamine um, that come from different sources. So what impacts one person will not impact another in the same way. 
And all I really want to just cover in this episode is that sugar is pretty addictive and it releases inordinate amounts of dopamine that are hard for our brains to sort of digest, let alone our bodies, let alone the insulin response to the sugar. Our brain is kind of going, huh? Like it was not designed for that level of concentrated hit. We were designed for like some berries in season and our brain will think that whatever created that amount of dopamine must be really incredible and important and it will like create more desire in us to get it again. We then eat more sugar because we haven't been intentional with our planning, with our, you know, with our food, with our exceptions and the loop continues, it strengthens. And for some people, this is where it can become quite overpowering. And over time, something to really notice and definitely happened for me is your dopamine response actually down regulates and it will just want more in order to get the same hit. So that then turns into really big cravings for sugar and huge urge in you that just like compels you to eat. And that's when I talk about the food feeling more powerful than you, like it's like physically bigger than you. And I just want to say without sounding patronizing for a second, because that's not what I'm doing, just want to say it's not your fault. It is not something that's wrong with you. It is actually your brain doing exactly what it should do, what it was designed to do, which is to seek pleasure and be efficient. Like a chocolate bar is a double whammy in achieving that. It's like in your mind, at least. It's like a chocolate bar doesn't help you if you want to lose weight, if you want to balance your hormones, if you want to regulate your desire. But it gets you pleasure with this huge dopamine response. And it was a tiny bar that you had to probably do hardly anything, expend any energy to get. Um, And so you're being super efficient. So what I would love to offer you today is that doing a bit of a reset can really help things. So taking two weeks, even a week off of sugar, can firstly just help with your awareness of what might be going on for you. So being in that place of curiosity, but it can help to regulate your desire for it and in turn help regulate your insulin because obviously putting less sugar into your bloodstream doesn't mean like insulin doesn't have to work as hard or be as present. And so it can all just start to settle down. And what I'll say here is that it's certainly a process and one you just need to try out and explore for yourself if you think it's an opportunity for you. It's an area where that whole like calories are not created equal thing makes a difference. A calorie from a can of Coke isn't the same as from some roast chicken and your body will have a totally different response to it. The insulin response will be different. And so maybe... If you have a goal in mind, this is something for you to look at. And as much as this is about that food, you've got to look at how you're thinking about it. When I do a reset, I think of it not like a diet or a restriction or something I'm making myself do. I think of it like an opportunity to give my body the sort of MOT it needs. And that of course my brain has desire for these things. That's totally normal. 
but I want to treat my body with intention rather than letting my lower brain run the show because I've got a goal. I know my reasons. I know my why, and I am working consistently towards that. So just always consider how you're thinking about things when you're taking action, when you're taking any of the action that um, might come up for you, that might compel you and start to connect how what you're thinking will create a feeling in you that will drive the action. And you want to be taking place from a, like taking action from a place of commitment or belief from self-love and trust or even like excitement rather than restriction and willpower and self-deprivation. And really it's about like brainstorming what thoughts create those positive feelings in you that will drive you to take action in a way that feels that's how you create the alignment when things are feeling kind of good for you rather than from this place of restriction or willpower because it you just won't carry on your brain will be like no this feels rubbish please can we just go back to our old habits and so it's just really not sustainable changing looking at your thinking and changing it so that you create these feelings in you to drive your actions is how over time it will become sustainable it will become habit it will become how you think so that's it for now. That was a big one. I hope you enjoyed it. Think about how you eat, the order that you eat, and whether a sugar reset might be something you want to try out. And think about kind of the end result of the sugar reset. Like it's not about never having sugar again. You can build it back up. But really, some people will be at a certain point where a reset is a really great way just to bring back that insulin into a place where it's working as it should do and working for you rather than against you. So always try to incorporate thought work to go alongside any action that you decide to take. And you can always message me if you ever want to discuss this or brainstorm with me. It's totally possible to get these hormones happy and for everything to be working for you. And it will make your life so much easier and you'll find that in doing these things to regulate your hormones, which will in turn reduce your over-desire and over-hunger, your ability to follow your plan and do what you intend to do, do what you want to do to get the results that you've decided that you want, it will all feel like so much easier and less loaded. And you'll be able just to keep going without as much resistance and finally create the weight loss or weight that feels natural to you. You'll be able to create that sense of balance and alignment in you that you desire. So I hope that you take what you like and leave the rest. And I thank you so much for listening. I love that you've been here with me. Have a beautiful week, my friends, and I'll see you soon. Bye.